Welcome. Like many people watching this program today, I was at Ocon a couple of weeks ago. And if you were at the conference, you may recall that in the, the ballrooms where the talks took place, there were these three large screens at the front of the room, which were scrolling with various kinds of personal stories, testimonials, in many cases from students who had read Rand's novels and then participated in the essay contest or the reading groups, teachers who had used the novels and the nonfiction in their classrooms, uh, thereby stimulating interesting discussions and engagements with the students. Uh, and I remember there was one testimonial in particular which stood out and which was closely related to the story that we're going to hear today. It was about someone who at the time had been serving a prison sentence and had read Atlas Shrugged, which at the time was the apparently the biggest book in the prison library. And this person had managed to turn his thinking around and turn his life around as a result of reading this book. But today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to someone whose story is very, very similar to this, Michael Leibowitz. Uh, Michael, welcome to The Daily Objective. Uh, it's a great pleasure to meet you. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And nice to meet you, too. So I was thinking, Michael, if we could begin by talking a little bit about your story before you discovered Ayn Rand, before you discovered Ludwig von Mises, uh, the Austrian School of Economics, libertarianism, which you are very much interested and in, involved with these days. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your upbringing? For example, were you raised Jewish or Christian? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your thinking and your intellectual background before you discovered Rand and libertarianism? Okay, uh, I was raised criminal, not not, uh, not Christian or, or Jewish. Um, my parents were both drug addicts, and I, I was taught from a young age by both word and deed that laws were made to be broken, that other people's rights don't matter. And when that, when I thought necessary, violence was appropriate. And obviously that way of thinking is going to lead to bad results. So I ended up in prison when I was 21 years old uh, with a 33 year prison sentence. And can you say a little bit about your first encounter with objectivist philosophy with libertarian ideas. Uh, before we went live on air, you mentioned that before you read Atlas Shrugged, you read some commentaries on Rand's works. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about the first few books that introduced you to this world of ideas? What actually happened was I was reading a book of 64 mini biographies by historian Jim Powell. It was called The Triumph of Liberty. And one of the mini biographies was of Ayn Rand. And it talked about her book, Atlas Shrugged, and that it just intrigued me immediately. I wanted to learn about her. So I had a laissez-faire books catalog a couple months later and Atlas Shrugged was in there, but so was a book called The Philosophical Thought of Ayn Rand. Now at the time, I'm 25 years old. I, I'm, I'm not conversant in this stuff. I'm thinking it's you know all part of the same thing. So I, the first book I read was The Philosophical Thought of Ayn Rand, which was actually a series of commentaries or, and critiques of her work. Of course, I had no way to assess whether these critiques were accurate or not at the time. I mean, they're, they're saying things that they could be true, not who knew. But after that, I read Atlas Shrugged, and that was just a phenomenal experience for me. Can you say a little bit about what it was at this particular time in your life that drew you to Rand's ideas and to free market ideas, ideas about liberty more generally. What was it that resonated with you in these ideas? Well, prior to reading Rand, I had already read a significant amount of, I guess you would call it classical liberal or libertarian literature. Um, I, I had read uh, 
Austrian economics, a reader. I had read Milton Friedman, Henry Hazlitt, Carl, Carl Menger, Frederick Bastiat. So I was already, by the time I got to Rand, inclined toward a, a free market approach to economics. What I was lacking in my life was a moral base, not just toward government issues and in politics, but in my own life. And so reading Rand and the emphasis she placed on reason. Okay, so let me back up just a little. A few years earlier, I had taken a social ethics class. Um, I'd never completed it, but I did take it in prison. And I came across Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction that a thing can't both be and not be at the same time. From that moment on, I dedicated myself to eliminating contradictions from my mind because I knew right when I heard it that this was a sound principle. So I knew that I had to do that. And then reading Atlas Shrugged, where these were just you know, extremely logical people that weren't dealing with emotions. I mean, my whole life, I dealt with emotion. I happen to not like you, I hurt you. I want your money, I take it. I mean, it was just a disaster for me. And to just come across these heroes who were reasoning and who believed in acting in their own self-interest and things like justice and independence, it was it was phenomenal. Now, of course, on my first reading of Atlas Shrugged, I, I by no means grasped the whole philosophy, but it was definitely the, the hook at the end of the line that drew me in for sure. I'd like to delve in a little bit more to some of the free market literature, Austrian sure. literature, because I, I find this the, the, that literature very fascinating as well. So many years ago, I read Frederick Bastiat's The Law. Uh, I More recently, I read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, which was a really fantastic book. Can you tell me about some of the key texts, some of the key books that really influenced your thinking about sure. economics, about politics? So the first two books that I ever read along these these lines, I read Free to Choose by Milton Friedman and Frederick Bastiat's The Law, and they both made a very compelling case for liberty, but they did it from two totally different perspectives. For Milton Friedman argued from a social utility perspective that these are the policies that are going to create the most benefits or the most prosperity for the greatest number of people. These are efficient, the, you know, the, the basic economics argument for freedom. Whereas Frederick Bastiat, Bastiat argued for individual rights. He didn't use that term, but that's what he was talking about. And he said, our fundamental rights are to life, liberty, and property, which, you know, of course, the life and liberty in the Declaration of Independence. But he made a very strong case, in my view, I subsequently found out that it's not as strong as I initially thought, but it's still strong. And the reason I say it's not as strong as I initially thought, because he postulates that theft and violence are wrong. He doesn't prove it. But most people accept that theft and violence are wrong. So once I accepted it and then he says, well, if it's wrong for one person to commit an act of violence or an act against somebody's property, then that person can get together with another person and do it. And it's still wrong. And no matter how many people get together to engage in acts of violence and acts against property, it's still wrong. And once you accept his basic premise, the conclusion follows inevitably. And he also talked about self-defense and how a person has a right to defend their life and their liberty and their property. And again, accepting as a premise that violence is wrong, that theft is wrong, that just made sense. So he said, so if two people get together and they want to basically have a, a mutual defense pack, that's fine. And no matter how many people you multiply there, it, it's fine as long as it restricts itself to self-defense. And I found his argument at the time to be irrefutable. Although, like I said, I, he didn't tie it to a proper moral base, but I was in no position to know that at that time. 
So if I understand correctly, what you really got from Let Rad, what you really got from Atlas Shrugged and her other books that you've read was, was this moral foundation, it was tying the political principles and the economic principles uh, to something solid, something that you could actually see and experience. Is, is that about right? It, it is, only I would I would just add one additional thing is that the, the epistemology of Ayn Rand metaphysics too but she doesn't spend a lot of time on metaphysics right metaphysics is reality is what it is it's real it exists it's independent of us so the, the, the metaphysics is there but the epistemology that she breaks down of reason as the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by the senses and logic is the the process there the method that reason uses and it's the art of non-contradictory identification and then when i got on to um the introduction to objectivist epistemology and, and measurement omission and, and all that stuff that really created the proper base from which I could build on her ethics. And then of course the ethics extends into politics. Can you say a little bit about how you were able to get access to all these different books? Did you, were you actually able to get physical books? While yeah, you, yes. I, when I read Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law, in the back of it was an address for a place called the Foundation for Economic Education. They still exist. I get articles from them now. But And so I just wrote to him. I said, listen, I'm interested in these ideas. Do you have anything? Can you send me something? And they gave me a one-year free subscription to their magazine, Ideas on Liberty. So I was able to learn a tremendous amount just from, from those. But in there, there was an, an address for a place called Laissez-Faire Books. So I wrote to them and asked them to send me a catalog. They did. And that catalog just had, you know, all types of Ayn Rand books, books about Ayn Rand. So that's where I was able to get, for instance, uh, objectivist epistemology and this, the the old tried and true. I mean, it's, you know, it's worn, but but it, but it still helps, you know, so that's where I was able to get those books and also like George Reisman's capitalism and Mises's human action. I mean, there was just so many books available in there. And for a few years, my buddy and I just kept ordering books from there nonstop. And that's, it was really a phenomenal experience to be honest with you. It was great. Awesome. I remember many years ago, I subscribed to the Mises.org. They have daily articles on yes. various, and sometimes they have classic articles by Rothbard, by uh, Hayek, and sometimes by newer, by newer intellectuals, yeah. like, uh, you know, the, the current people who, uh, did you ever subscribe or read their articles as well? Um, my last year in prison, somebody actually sent me their quarterly magazine, the Austrian. And then when I got out, I looked them up. And so I, I do, I get daily articles from the Mises Institute. I get daily articles from Foundation for Economic Education. And, you know, while there's plenty of room for disagreement, especially in regards to politics, I do find the economic stuff pretty engaging and very convincing most of the time. I mean, when they get into the, you know, the ANCAP stuff, that's, that's not for me, but explaining economics and what increases in minimum wages do and price controls and regulations, that stuff I really enjoy. Did you have many opportunities when you were in prison to discuss these ideas with other people, to uh, yes. compare notes, other people who are reading the same kind of literature? Well, what actually happened was um, in 2001, you know, I had been reading this stuff for maybe two years. I met the guy that would ultimately be my best friend and still is to this day. And he actually was a socialist at the time. So I didn't know that. So I start talking and we start arguing, you know, and uh, 
I said, well, I challenge you to read some of this stuff. And as he did, he, we would argue about it. And, you know, the, the books convinced them ultimately more than I did, but he read Frederick Bastiat's the law. And he's just like, this is my new Bible. This, he was utterly convinced. I mean, like Julian Simon's the ultimate resource. We, we had the ultimate resource too, but nonetheless, what we, what we were doing, we were reading stuff that was just point by point logically refuting the messages that you'd get if you just sit in front of the tv and watch the the mainstream media one often hears that uh people when they're in prison a lot of people they discover religion i've heard uh, the statistic that uh, islam is one of the fastest growing religions among black people who are incarcerated of course malcolm x was a famous example of that did yeah. you uh, see that among other inmates, that a lot of them would turn to Christianity, turn to Islam, it, turn to yes. other? Um, it, it's not like, you know, everybody in the buildings headed to church. No, some inmates do. I don't I wouldn't know. Probably not even as many, maybe as many. I don't know. But that in the free world. So, yeah, it, it does happen. Um, I wouldn't say that it's excessive, but sure. A lot of guys do find religion, whether it be Christianity, Islam. I uh, studied Judaism for years. You know, I was very interested because of my heritage. I wanted to learn about it. So I, I studied it. I practiced it for a little while. And then ultimately the ideas, the arguments for God's existence just began to fall apart the more I thought about it. And, you know, so I became an atheist, which is where I am today. Doesn't mean I didn't learn anything. I learned plenty going to Jewish services. I mean, they've got philosophers and historians and I mean, the Jews have been involved in, all, you know, throughout history and all different types of things. So I learned a lot, but just the God stuff isn't for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because is sure. there anything about Judaism that still intrigues you? Because there have been some really fantastic Jewish intellectuals, Moses Maimonides, Spinoza, Moses Mendelssohn. There's a real tradition of great intellectuals in Judaism. Sure. Uh, and of course, in the arts, you know, great writers, great composers, musicians. Is there something about Judaism that still intrigues you today, even as an atheist? Sure. But you, you mentioned Maimonides. So Maimonides, if you, it's interesting because there's a lot of like parallels because if you look in mainstream philosophy of course you see the duel between plato and aristotle in judaism you have a similar dynamic with if you go to philo judaeus and, and moses maimonides philo being the platonist and maimonides being more of an aristotelian so yeah it's there's a lot of brilliant stuff in there and they make a lot of what at the time were compelling arguments for god's existence in my mind because i hadn't considered the counter arguments so they they made a lot of sense but the ethical stuff too, the difference between a Judaism and a Christianity is Judaism focuses not, whereas Christianity focuses on what you believe, you know, in terms of faith in God, Judaism focuses on what you do, on how you behave as, as a person. That's what matters. And there's also far more allowance for self-interest in Judaism. You know, the famous quote from the Rabbi Hillel, if I am not for myself, who will be? You know, I mean, he goes on to say, if I am only for myself, what am I? But nonetheless, there is the allowance as opposed to Christianity, you know, where it's basically crucify yourself, sacrifice yourself for others, be humble, be meek. In Judaism, you don't have that. And also they don't have the emphasis on sexual, you know, the, the, the obsessiveness that Christianity seems to have with people's sexual behavior you don't have in Judaism. And then, of course, I mean, the history is just phenomenal. You're going back to the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Babylonians. I mean, they're just involved in everything. So I found that incredibly interesting. 
Yeah, and actually, the there's an idea that Judaism is a more this worldly religion than Christianity. Yeah. It's more concerned with success and prosperity. I mean, even Dr. Binswanger has mentioned that in some of his talks. And so that resonates. I would say I would say that's accurate, with the the caveat that there's a lot of different factions in, in Judaism. So I don't like the the rabbi that taught me. He didn't believe in an afterlife for instance, he thought that what matters is what you do right here. And he said, Judaism doesn't teach of an afterlife. Subsequently, I have found Jewish sources that, you know, basically uh, emphasize an afterlife. But there is certainly within Judaism, a more powerful emphasis on the here and now. If, if it can be said, it's a more logical religion than, than Christianity. But I don't, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still believing in a God and an all-powerful God. So, you know, it, it, that breaks down. But something interesting in it is within Judaism, they tend not to take the Bible literally. There was a, a, a rabbi, I think I want to say the 1400s, maybe the 1100s, I don't know, but his name was Rashi. And he wrote a paper. And in the paper, he talked about how in the Bible, they, they actually have day and night before the creation of the sun. And he says, the, the, he says basically the text is telling you don't take it literally and it was just fascinating to me that this guy in the middle ages is talking about how you shouldn't take the bible literally a very respected jewish scholar a religious man and yet people today there's out there that believe the earth was created in six days wow wow Let's talk a little bit about your more recent activities. So you've written a sure. book, uh, View from a Cage, My yes. Journey from Convict to a Crusader for Liberty. Can you tell us a little bit about the writing of the book and uh, sure. what um, the book is about? My last, I don't know, two years in prison, I decided I wanted to write a book. And so I did. And then I was thinking, what, you know, what can I write this book about? And part of it was cathartic. I wanted to write about me and what, what I found interesting about me. And also I wanted to get my ideas out there because I quite frankly like to debate and I like to convince people of my ideas. So I decided to write an intellectual autobiography basically. And that, I mean, the book contains a lot of personal stuff too. So it's more than just an intellectual biography, but I try to take the reader through my thinking and how I started when I first confronted these books and started reading and how my thinking, I don't want to say evolved because that implies sort of just a natural process where it wasn't that it was a lot of effort, excruciating effort on the thinking, but it definitely shows how, how I thought about things initially, the, the, you know, the stuff that I picked up early that I held on to the stuff that I let go, how I ended up integrating the various sources of information that were building my intellectual edifice. And ultimately it culminates with Ayn Rand. I mean, Ayn Austrian economics certainly influenced me. A lot of things have, but nothing has influenced me and nobody has influenced my overall life perspective. I mean, when it comes to being a criminal in, in criminal psychology, Dr. Stanton Samenow had an incredible influence on me, but only because he fits in to objectivism, to, to Ayn Rand's philosophy. What I mean is he ultimately, his fundamentals don't contradict it. But in terms of how my life is, how I live my life, how I think, there's no influence greater than Ayn Rand. 
Let's talk a little bit about your YouTube channel and podcast uh, called sure. The Rational Egoist. And yes. the uh, link is going to be in the description. I encourage all of our viewers to check out the channel. I've watched your first couple of videos and found them very interesting. Thank I you. noticed you have interviews with prominent economists like Richard Saltzman <laughs> uh, and some uh, objectivists as well. You've got... Uh, Dr. Yaron Brook, Dr. Harry Binswanger, yeah. uh, also uh, our our dear friend James Valiant, who's a yes, regular awesome. uh, contributor. Yeah. He actually interviewed me. He interviewed me on my show. It was great. Yeah. Can, so, can you tell us a little bit about how you you started this project about four months ago to do a YouTube March? Chat? Yeah. Um. So when I, while I was incarcerated, my friend and I wrote another book called Down the Rabbit Hole: How the Culture of Corrections Encourages Crime. From that book, through a long, tedious process that I, I won't get into, I ended up being a regular guest on a talk show, a local, a very uh, popular local talk show in Connecticut, the Todd Feinberg show. And I just fell in love with it. I mean, from the very first interview I did, it was supposed to be a one, you know, a one off. At the end of the interview, he said, how would you like to be a regular on the show? And I said, absolutely. I mean, I had considered being a talk host before. I just never considered any possible avenues for it. But as I continued doing it, I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, so I got out of prison and I decided to start booking for his show, you know, not being paid for it. I just did it because I figured, well, one, I'll prove myself to him you know, into his station in case they want to hire me that, that I can do things. But also I ended up building a contact list, you know, from trying to get people on Todd show and getting people on his show, I ended up with a very extensive contact list of some very prominent people like you, you're mentioning. And it was absolutely astonishing to me. It didn't surprise me that they agreed to go on Todd show. It's, you know, the most popular talk show in the state. But when I'm calling, you know, Dr. David Friedman for my first interview and I say, hey, will you come on my show? Sure. No problem. And Dr. Harry Binswanger and Yaron Brook, I, it's been an, a very uh, surreal experience for me because these are guys that I read about in prison. So when you're reading about people, I mean, it's like movie stars. They don't even seem real. I'm reading about them, but still, they're not like real people. But then to have them sitting, you know, I'm looking at them on my computer and talking to them and ask them questions and sometimes debating them. It's been a really phenomenal experience. That's awesome. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before I tune in with our producer and acknowledge the super chats and comments from our viewers? Well, I would just like to, first of all, thank you for the the opportunity to be here. It's, it's wonderful. Um, it's been great how many people have accepted me, given my history. Some haven't, but a lot have, and it's been great. And I would just ask the audience, well, first check out my show and check out my book. But beside that, just don't dismiss me based on what I did when I was 21 years old. Actually look into me if you're interested. I mean, if you're not, you're not. But if you're interested in the in the type of stuff that we're talking about, Look into me, look at my story, look what I've done, and, and then judge me in light of a full context. Not, like I said, just based on what I was when I was a teenager and 20 years old and 21 years old. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I have a lot of admiration for your intellectual journey. You. What, what you're accomplishing now is, is truly extraordinary. Uh, let me ask our producer, Daniel, do we have any super chats, any comments from our viewers at this point? Uh, we have a super chat from Wes. Thank you so much. A super sticker from Bonnie. Thank you so much. And a super sticker from Gail. Thank you so much. And also someone asked why was Michael in jail? I'm not sure if you want to share it. 
no problem at all. I was in jail for an abundance of crimes ranging from assaults to drug charges. But the biggest charge and what I mean by biggest is the crime for which I got the most time. I when I was 21 years old, I, I had broken up with my girlfriend. She had a new boyfriend. He and I argued. Um, we had, a you know, argued back and forth for a few months. And eventually I had uh, three of my friends break into his house and, and stab him. They beat him up. They stabbed him. And I received the 27 year sentence for that. That went on top of a six year sentence that I got from other another assault that I committed. Well, we appreciate uh, you sharing with us. And you talk about this in your book as well as uh, in sure. some of the interviews in your yeah. podcast. Yeah, as I'm, well. I'm not opposed to going into more depth. I just know that we're constrained for time. So I you know, want to give a, just a quick synopsis. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, it's been a real thrill chatting with you. I hope uh, perhaps someday I'll get to see you in person, whether at a conference or in a talk or some other venue. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us, for sharing thank your you. story. And thank you to our viewers for your support and for watching us and uh, look forward to seeing your comments in the days ahead. Uh, so thank you all very much and stay tuned. Uh, the Daily Collective is coming up in about five minutes or less than five minutes. So you'll definitely want to catch that as well. Thank you again, Michael Leibowitz. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. And to all our viewers, thank you for watching and best premises.